Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream as we continue our study through the book of Job. Hope you all had a good night's rest last night with daylight savings kicking in today. We'll be in Job chapter 9 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and thank you for this passage that we'll be looking at today. And thank you that you are wise and glorious, awesome in all your ways and that you have uh, great wisdom to impart to all who trust in you. And I pray that, Lord, you'd show us where we have room to grow in our faith and that you would open our eyes to see your majesty and your glory in, uh, in everything because you are good, you are glorious, and we, we look to you, Lord, uh, in good times and in, in struggles, knowing that you are our Savior, you are our life. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, and when we went to school, we had uh, subjects that we preferred over others, at least I did. Usually it correlated with understanding and performance. I remember halfway through year 12 in advanced placement physics, realizing I was completely lost. I had no idea the concepts or the maths that we were doing, and I don't even know how I managed to enroll in that course because uh, I was a year behind in the maths required. And the only way I passed is because I had lab partners who understood the information perfectly and they were able to help me through. Uh, filing taxes, I would also put into this curious category. Concepts, other people seem to understand very well. I look at the forms, just go, what are they asking? What do I need? And it's like me trying to decipher Braille. It's, it's not, I, I just am not very good at it. And I'm amazed at the skill and quickness of people who can read with their fingertips, who can understand what those forms mean. And I'm grateful for my wife, Laura, who provides those numbers and helps me. In my experience in physics and in taxes, it demonstrates my need to ask for assistance. If it's going to be done right, if it's going to be done quickly, if there will be any understanding, it will be because someone has assisted me. And you can have desire, you can make an effort, but it doesn't always produce desirable results. Sometimes help from others is critical to complete tasks. That's going to be a key factor in this message today. Job, he was a righteous man. He lived in Ur. God allowed him to suffer the loss of his family, his goods, his health at the hand of Satan. And he worshiped and blessed God instead of cursing him, uh, knowing that God was good. He, he had so many questions of why this had befallen him. He was full of confusion. And his three visiting friends had no answer. They, they blamed him for his struggles. Eliphaz and Bildad, they asserted that Job's sin was the cause of his struggles. And if he would repent, then he would be restored. God would immediately come to his aid and things would be better. But Job was a blameless and upright man. It wasn't because he had sinned and God had said he is blameless. He is upright. And Job resented the implication that he was to the cause of what he was going through, that his children had perished, that his goods were destroyed. And Bildad concluded his first address in Job 8, verse 20. He said, Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. To Bildad, it 
seemed God had cast Job aside because of his wickedness. And Job felt like he had been cast aside. But God had not forgotten him. He had not forsaken him. He was, his ears were open to his cries. And for a season, he was silent as this all played out. God saw everything that was going on. And he, he empowered Job to be sustained with the aim to deliver him, to save him, to bless and restore him. Job was a man without help in himself. His friends could offer him no comfort. But God would help him. God would raise him up. And his God and Savior would prove that he is worthy. So we come to the passage in Job 9, starting in verse 1. In response to Bildad. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? While Job did not agree with Bildad's assessment that he was the cause for his own misery, uh, or he was being punished for sin that he was hiding, that he was not repenting of, he agreed that God would bring the wicked to nothing. And God is right to judge those who oppose him. The question Job had was, if what Bildad is saying is true, this absolute concerning, this absolute concept of sin and then destruction and punishment in every case, well, how could anyone be righteous before God? How was that even possible? If Job was an upright man and suffering what he did, it seemed like he was suffering more than Bildad and Eliphaz who also had sinned. Who could claim to be sinless? Who could, be claim, who could claim to be equal in righteousness with God? Job's reason led him to conclude man cannot measure up or even be compared to God in any way. Bildad and David, they both viewed man as a worm before God. And it shouldn't be seen as, as uh, man is to God what a worm is to a man. No, he's saying what God, compared to God, man is a worm. Not like one, like he is one. He's, he's wallowing in the dust, in the dirt, when God is glorious and powerful and, and just so beyond, like they're really not comparable in any way. Now, man often holds himself in high esteem compared to some other men, yet compared to God, the strongest, the wisest, the most creative and, and beautiful People, they're worms wallowing in soil. I looked into earthworms a bit. They can't travel very far or fast. They're basically eating and pooping machines. They're susceptible to predators and parasites. Their lives are lived out silently under the soil. And they're easily stepped on. They, they provide no resistance to a spade going into the soft earth. Worms are scavengers, decomposers, or parasites. There's millions of them, and, and I, I read that in an acre of ground, there can be a, a million of them, but you wouldn't know it. You would not know their names. You wouldn't be able to determine which one is one from another. Like, you don't have relationships with them. They're very different than people. So man's wisdom, in the same way, cannot be compared to God's wisdom and God's ways. Job asserted, if God asked a question, man can't answer him. He could ask a thousand questions and man would be like, huh, I don't know. 
<laughs> and, and we'll see that that actually is how this plays out when God did speak and ask questions of Job. Job asked, who has hardened himself against God and prospered? Not one. It's like that worm that it's, it's half out of the ground. You start pulling on it and the worm resists that. Well, who's going to win that tug of war? The worm will be pulled in half. Uh, you don't prosper trying to resist God. God is mighty and stronger than a man. He is awesome in every way. Now, God had referred to Job several times as a blameless and upright man. Job asked a question, and it's important that we establish this uh, because this will be dealt with throughout the whole book. When he asks, how can a man be righteous before God? The Hebrew word is sadak. To be righteous means to be in the right, to be justified or just. The first use of this word is in Genesis 38, 26 by Judah, when he said his daughter-in-law Tamar was more righteous or more just than he. He said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to, give her to Shelah, my son. Judah initially had promised that Shelah, his son, would marry Tamar after she had been widowed twice. And he went back on his word. He didn't do it. And so when he accused her of playing the harlot, he was exposed as not only being the one that sired her, but also the one who had lied to her and misled her. And so this passage, it speaks of righteousness in a relative sense. Like she is more righteous than I, not, not in the sense when we're talking about God and he is absolutely righteous, totally just, without sin, pure and perfect and holy in every way. So that's one way that the Bible speaks of righteousness. Like Job and Noah, they were righteous as in comparison to everyone else. They were upright. They were blameless. They still weren't perfect. They were human beings. Another way that righteous is used in the Bible is in a legal sense. Having been declared righteous by God through faith in him. Like in the case of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God's righteousness was imputed and given to him. And so in God's sight, he was altogether righteous. Again, in his flesh, not perfect. He made mistakes. But in God's eyes, he was righteous through his faith. Re received as a free gift. So Job's question is talking about the comparative sense of righteousness. He's saying like, if I'm a blameless and upright man who can't escape condemnation, who can? How is it possible? Trying to measure up to God's righteousness, it proved a hopeless prospect. It seemed unfair to face such grievous trials from failing to measure up to an impossible standard. So that's what Job is wrestling with. He's saying, well, if I'm blameless and upright, if I fear God and hate evil, and I'm being punished for sin that I don't even know what it is, who can, who can measure up to this standard? This seems like God's holding all the cards and there's nothing I can do to change my situation. You, you, Bill, Dad, Eliphaz, you're telling me I need to do something. Well, I've done everything. And I can't figure it out. God's judgment of the wicked is always just. Was making an upright man to suffer also just. He's wrestling with this. Job continues in verse 5. He removes the mountains. They do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. 
He made the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. God is righteous. God is powerful. His, his greatness is, is more mighty than all the angels and men, men's power combined at once. Like immovable mountains are removed by God's power. And he knows what mountains and men cannot know. He speaks poetically of God shaking the earth out of its place, causing pillars to tremble. That his power is not just seen in the earth, but in the heavens. He wasn't of the view that the earth is, in a, is sitting on pillars. He says later in Job 26, 7, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. God created the sun to shine. He treads on the waves of the sea. He does what's impossible for man. He placed the stars in the heaven and he calls them all by name. Job mentions notable constellations that are visible from the northern hemisphere, which fits with where Job was in the world in Ur, the, in Ur, the bear of Ar, or Arcturus, as it's also called, Orion, the Pleiades, plus the stars in the chambers of the south that were unseen by him. So he's like, there's some stars I can see. There's other things that are concealed to me. I can't see them. Having lived in the Northern Hemisphere for most of my life in San Diego, I did notice the changes in the sky when I came to Australia. And uh, Matthew Henry, he writes this to the chambers of the south. Not only those stars which we see and give names to, but those also in the other hemisphere about the Antarctic Pole, which never come in our sight called here the chambers of the south, and are under the divine direction and dominion. When I was a kid, I was, the only star that I really knew was the north star, Polaris. And it's a star that you can easily see. It's a half degree off true north. And if you go south of the equator, half a degree, you can't see it in the sky. And I remember coming to Australia and going, where is it? The Big Dipper and all these things that I thought I knew and couldn't see them. Uh, couldn't see the Southern Cross from San Diego. From what I've read, Hawaii is the only place in the U.S. where you can see the Southern Cross uh, in May or June. All the constellations Job mentions, they could be seen with the naked eye. They would be visible. The bear, it's a giant star, a red star, uh, the brightest north of the celestial equator. It's the fourth brightest in the sky. And the tail of the Big Dipper points to it if you wanted to try to find it. Orion, it's a celestial equator constellation, meaning it's visible from both hemispheres, uh, depending on your distance from the equator. And this was another one that got me. When you're in the States and you look at Orion and you find his belt, well, he's upright. And then from Australia, he's on his head. And they call the belt sometimes the saucepan because of its orientation. And it points to Pleiades, which will be rising pretty soon in the northeast. And they're also called the, the Seven Sisters or Subaru. I think that's the Japanese term for them. The Pleiades are mentioned in Amos 5.8, Job 9.9, Job 38.31. During the lockdown, I've really enjoyed morning walks. I find that Walking in the afternoon or evening is not always that convenient for me, and I'll just, I'll miss it sometimes. But if I get up early, I can, 
I can uh, fit that in. And I, where I live now, because it's a, they've cleared a lot of the area for a new development, it's like I have the most unobstructed view of the moon uh, that I've ever had. And I've really enjoyed waking up in the morning and I can just see the moon just traveling day by day across the night sky, uh, east to west. And it's just, excuse me, west to east. And you can also see the various phases of it. And it's just like, God is so awesome in the things that he does. How he has created things. And he, he causes those stars that are so far away to appear fixed to us. And yet, he, he has everything in his control. The brilliance of the moon. The beauty of a sunrise. We've had some beautiful sunrises lately. The birds singing. You see them flitting across the sky. And the parrots and the, the wagtails and... Even the snails and the slugs crossing the road. And you're like, why are you crossing the road? What's over there? I don't, I don't even know why you would. But why would you even make such a thing? But God has done so. And who can ask God, why have you done that? He is God. He's the creator. Job says he does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Job had not seen God, but he'd observed the, the, the stars in the heavens. And he was amazed by the things that God does that are past finding out. And he's saying, like, who among us has the right to question God or criticize him? Who is so wise and awesome? Who can stop God from doing anything? To, to ask God, what are you doing? It'd be like me. It'd be even more ridiculous than me walking into a room with physicists. And there's all these formulas and maths on the board and say, what are you guys doing? Like they're doing something wrong. When I don't even know what those symbols mean. And if they were to try to dumb it down to my level and tell me what each thing means and why it's significant, it would go completely over my head. I wouldn't even be able to appreciate their answer. And how much greater is God who has given us all these things? So glory to God that he would reveal himself to us. Continuing in Job 9.14. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my words without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Job felt it was absolutely futile to try to reason with God as if God needed any insight from him. If, if he could possibly correct God in anything, God's the author of all truth and understanding. The most learned and skilled people are barely scratching the surface of what God knows. And the only way we know anything is because God has revealed it to us. That's the only way we could know it. We live in a world where we have specialists. They know what they know because they've learned from others and they've built upon that knowledge with practical experience. Now, not everyone on earth is a specialist. We don't have like a, we may have a speciality like, oh, I make this dish really well. Somebody else may not agree with that. It's kind of ironic that 
Uh, with modern skepticism, we even feel entitled to disagree with experts. But God, he's the absolute authority overall. It's not just there's one subject that he has mastery of. And truly, who has full mastery over anything? There's so much in innovation and information yet to be gained where we learn things every day. There is much to learn. God created the earth. He designed the cells in our bodies. He created the natural laws which govern planetary motion and the gravity of the earth. And everything's been meticulously, miraculously balanced to his immaculate standards of perfection. He created life, light, love, God's eternal, righteous, and without sin. Matthew Henry, he wrote this, Our finite understandings cannot fathom his counsels, apprehend his motions, or comprehend the measures he takes. We are therefore incompetent judges of God's proceedings, because we do not know what he does, because we know not what he does not in what he designs. I mean, we don't know what God's doing. We are incompetent judges. Job said, even if my righteousness were not in doubt, I could not answer him. I would just beg for mercy. That's, that's my only chance is the mercy of God. I can't reason with him, but I can beg him for mercy. And perhaps he will hear me. Will God ever say to us, you know, I hadn't thought of that consequence. I hadn't thought of that. The way you put that, that's a new idea to me. No, God knows it. He knows all things. Job believed God was so great, the chance to even be heard by him was nil. He had this, he wasn't thinking he was close to God. He felt very far from God. I looked into the last time the queen, her highness, visited Australia in October 2011. Over the course of 10 days, she and the Duke of Edinburgh, they attended meetings, they made appearances, they had a schedule that they followed and no rational person would think it was appropriate or fitting to, that they would have an opportunity to address the queen about the choice of her attire or to report how Woolies no longer stocks the crisps they prefer. That would be ridiculous, right? A concerned citizen, we can write letters to the government and say, these are my complaints, these are my concerns. The person that you address it to, they may not ever read it. And if they do read it, they may just shrug it off because they have other things that they're doing. In Job's mind, God was the cause of his suffering. Job interpreted it as God's displeasure. And if he was indeed suffering for sin, that Job could not for the life of him figure out what it was. He's like, could I even get an audience with him? I've been crushed with a storm of adversity. My wounds have been multiplied. I have been afflicted. I've been filled with bitterness from God. So he's like, God's doing this to me. So how can I go to him for help? He knew he had no chance to oppose or fight against God and prosper, but he found no relief. Anything he said he felt could be used against him. And who could speak against God who's presiding over the court? There was no judge greater than he. Even if he was righteous, he's like, God will just dismiss my case. He won't even hear it. And his actions are speaking loudly to me. That's how he interpreted his pains. Job 9.21, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. 
If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? A big source of Job's confusion and his anguish came from the fact that he did fear and trust God and he believed he was the one who afflicted him. And reconciling that was very difficult. How could, it, how could Job get help if the one he was seeking for help was the one who was afflicting him? It's like, how can I get out from under this affliction? It's a, it's a lose-lose. It's all one thing. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. That's disheartening. He's saying, I know I'm blameless, but at the same time, I don't know myself. I don't know myself fully. Like God can know sin that I don't know about. But if I don't know about it, how can I turn from it? How can I repent? He, what he did know is he despised his life. He's like, I, I don't want to keep on living like this. In his observations, it's a similar conclusion to what Solomon wrote about the vanity of life from a human perspective in Ecclesiastes 9, 1 and 2. He said this, For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. Job was one who had offered many sacrifices to God. And he despaired of life like one who did not know the Lord at all. Did God indeed laugh at the plight of the innocent? Was God to be blamed for allowing corrupt judges to promote injustice? I read a really insightful quote in the Enduring Word Commentary. It says, Tozer wrote, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. Job's conception of God was becoming, quite understandably, twisted by his own experience and imagination. That's a good thing to consider, what Tozer said. What comes into your mind when you think about God? It says more about you than what it says about him, because he's unchanging. He's revealed himself as he is. He was, he is, and will always be holy and righteous. He's good and does not change. If you believe God is a liar, why would you believe his word? If you believe God is spiteful and he arbitrarily hurts those who fear him, why would you trust him in trouble? The Bible gives us this level foundation and it's like a vertical, perfectly vertical plumb line that helps us to realign our ideas and misconceptions about God that we have. We have these thoughts like Job was having. God won't even listen to me. There's no hope for me. Like these are the thoughts that are going through his mind. God's laughing at me right now. While I'm struggling and I'm sorrow sorrowing, he is having, he is loving this, but that, that wasn't true. And God's word, it helps us to bring down those strongholds of error that come into our minds. 
where we start thinking God is a certain way when he's not that at all. Because our knowledge is partial, because our knowledge is, is uh, incomplete and often influenced by our feelings or what's happening at the moment or things we've heard from others, we can have a lot of assumptions and wrong ideas about God. Combine this with a painful experience or dashed expectations or being disillusioned by disappointment and hopelessness. There's a distorted view of God that can emerge because someone who, who says they, they are a follower of Christ or a Christian has treated us a certain way. We start to pit, pin blame upon God. Like his name has somehow been, somehow been sullied. And we've been exposed to hackneyed, cliche, and soundbite theology without biblical context. Some can just reject God wholesale where they say, God loves you. Well, you know, I don't feel loved right now. If this is what the love of God is like, I don't want anything to do with him. And so because they don't have a, a clear picture of who God is from the scripture, they write him off when God is seeking to draw them to himself. All we sinners, we have strongholds of error in our minds. We all have ideas we take refuge in that oppose and contradict God. And so, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, we are to cast down all ideas and all imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Because knowing God is critical to life and salvation. We're to bring those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And so by his grace, we can do this because we've been given his word, word that Job did not have in front of him. He didn't have, I don't believe us, because it was one of the earliest books written. He didn't have a Torah to read. He didn't have the scriptures as we do, the New and Old Testaments that describe God in much fuller living color. Continuing in Job 9, 25. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Job's days fled away faster than an express delivery, a courier or a runner, like that swift ship that disappeared on the horizon or the eagle that swooped the prey. It's like blinking. You miss it. Did you see that? That eagle just swooped and took that fish right out of the water. And you're like, no, I missed it. Right? It's like, that's how my life is. It's just passing by so quick. I'm reaching the end, trying to look on the bright side, trying to put on a happy face. It's not going to change how I feel and the reality that I am afraid of what I am facing. I stand no chance of being justified before God. If he was being judged for crimes he didn't know, and he was being assessed a penalty for sin that he couldn't pay through all his sufferings, what hope did he have for the future? What hope did he have for eternity? If the God who was doing this to him was the one who, who he needed to save him, what hope did he have? So he just felt despair and hopelessness. He could labor to be cleansed and forgiven. 
But he knew, I don't have the power to wash myself from sin. There's nothing I can do that will alleviate or wash me of my guilt. It's like only God has the power to forgive and to justify sinners. Suffering the consequences of sin does not make a man innocent. He recognized this. You can pay every cent of a fine. It doesn't expunge you of the guilt for having to pay the fine. A person who's been incarcerated for murder for 25 years and they do that life sentence, it doesn't mean they were innocent of murder. No, they were guilty of murder. Hence, they paid that debt. Job said, I can wash my body with soap, but God will throw me to a cesspool and my clothes will hate me. Have you ever had a job that it was just such a dirty job that you looked at your clothes, you said, these are beyond repair. They're going straight into the bin. I'm not going to wear these clothes again because they're too filthy, too stinky, right? Now, Job has turned that around and he's saying, my clothes despise me. My clothes desire, they will not be worn by me because I am the filthy one. I'm the one who's corrupt. He's like, I'm going to carry my guilt forever. Verse 32, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him. And that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. And do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. Job's established the power, the supremacy, the invisibility of God who is a spirit. He's like, I cannot take God to court. There's no possibility of us having a face-to-face chat or There's no mediator, there's no umpire, a third party that can make a decision that we both must honor. Job continued to respect and fear God. God had laid his hand upon Job, but he was overwhelmed. He was terrified. Matthew Poole wrote from Job's perspective, I am not free from his terror and therefore cannot and dare not plead my case boldly with him. And so have nothing else to do but to ease myself by renewing my complaints. And complaining didn't fix his problem. That there was no mediator. There was no help for him. His friends couldn't help him. He couldn't help himself. He's like, I can't wash myself from sin. Job needed help that he could not find anywhere on earth. He's in a tough spot. A man humbled by God who wields all power, control, and authority. He could not justify himself. He couldn't even make his case heard before God. And he began the chapter by saying, how can a man be righteous before God? It's like, I have no hope to be righteous before God because I'm a man. We're all sinners. There was no mediator, no court or judge greater than God. Now you might feel like Job sometimes. You might feel helpless in the struggle, when you don't understand and you feel confused and you wonder like, if God's not doing this, who is? Well, our case is different than Job's because Jesus has come. He is the mediator that Job's soul was crying out for. God has sent his answer in the person of Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, the gospel leaves no room for such a complaint as this. As it's written in Isaiah 59, God looked, he saw there was no hope for man because of his sin. There was no mediator. And so he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior, to be the mediator for us. 
The God who removes mountains, the God who spreads out the heavens by the words of his mouth, he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who tread on the waves of the Sea of Galilee. Job said, if he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. And that reminds me of that scene when Jesus is walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sees the disciples toiling at the oars in Mark 6, 48 through 50. It says, then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Jesus, he walked on the sea. He did not pass by those who struggled. He could have passed them by. But when he heard them call out to him, when he saw them struggling and they were getting nowhere, he came to them and he called out to them to deliver and save them. And he said, be of good cheer, you who struggle. Be of good cheer, you who feel like you're going nowhere. And it's dark and you can't see. You don't understand why things have happened to you. God is not a man, Job said in truth. But the God who does things past finding out and wonders without number became man. He became the man, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to atone for our sin, to cleanse us, and to impute the righteousness of God to us. So that upon us, God imputes no sin. Clean, restored, new robes of righteousness. Praise God for his goodness to us. Please turn in your Bibles to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The man who wrote this, Paul, he went through many sufferings for Christ's sake, right? He was struck blind on the road to Damascus. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was uh, accused of wrongs by his countrymen. He was rejected by them. But he says, our God and Savior, he desires all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. And he sent Jesus to be our mediator, the one whose Job's soul cried out for. God wants people to be saved. He wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, and there is salvation and forgiveness for all of those who trust in him, who place their faith in him. So no matter how far you feel from God, 
know that the everlasting God has come to you in Jesus and he's able to save you. As it says in Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's no way that we can be justified or cleansed of our sin before God by ourselves. But God, by his grace, he justifies all who trust in him. Romans 4, 5, it says, All who believe on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. And we can have knowledge of this. We, the Bible t- teaches us that it doesn't matter what we've done as far as Jesus Christ has paid to atone for our sin. And so our sin does not hinder us from a relationship with God, but we can come to him. When we sin, we ought to repent, but we can know we're forgiven. We can know that we're born again because of the Holy Spirit within us and because on the strength of God and his word, what he said, what he's done. May the truth that God's revealed in his word tear down misconceptions that you might have about God and prompt you to rejoice in his power to redeem, to forgive, and to save sinners by his grace. He loves you. He wants you to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to. So let's come before him knowing we have an intercessor, knowing we have a mediator, someone that Job was looking for wistfully and in his pains. Not able to see him, but he has revealed himself to us. And may we rejoice in his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. And may the gospel never become dry to us. Because you are our source of living water. You give rest to our souls. You wash us from sin. In your eyes, we are clean because of the price paid for our redemption. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. That when we toiled in our sins, and we deservedly so, but you came to us, and you called out to us, and you didn't pass us by. You saw us laboring, and you spoke. And Lord, thank you for uh, this book of Job, and how we do know that you spoke to him. During this long portion uh, of his wranglings and struggles, you remained silent, but you would speak. You would reveal yourself and you've done so to us. And I pray that we would hear your voice, Lord. We draw near to you. And when we see the stars in the heavens, we'd consider how marvelous you are, how awesome you are and the things that you create, the things you hold and, and the, the new world that you will usher us into, the new heavens and new earth where only righteousness dwells. Thank you, Lord, that we have this glorious future to look forward to because you are there. And we will be with you now and forever. And so I pray, Lord, that you would minister to the hearts of those who are struggling today, who who feel like you are very far and that perhaps you haven't been quick to answer their prayers. Things seem to drag. The pain continues. There's no answers. Lord, you are our answer. And so we place all our faith upon in you. And we ask that you would strengthen us to walk in your ways and not to lose heart, to keep doing good, to keep praying, to keep seeking, to keep asking and resting in your goodness. We thank you, God, for being God, that there is no one like you. 
and that you love us and you won't leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.